it's Tracy Malone from NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. Today, I have a very special guest, and it's so timely that we like jammed it in on a holiday to make sure that we get this information to you because it's about divorce and tax repercussions. What do you do with the house and um, you know, retirement accounts and filing status. Should you file jointly? Should you file house head of household? There's so many factors that could screw you up and cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. My guest today, um, her sermon is a friend of mine and he is brilliant and he is going to talk to us about things that you don't even understand could cost you a lot of money. One of the things that we're going to talk about is if you have $100,000 in retirement and they have $100,000 in retirement and you just go, you keep yours, I'll keep mine. You could be losing a lot of money if you do it that way. So let's go listen to Hirsch and find out what mistakes you don't want to make financially, specifically with taxes and divorce, because whether it's a retirement account or how you're going to get the money or how you'll pay for the house and what's the best way to file for taxes, what's your bargaining chips that you have to work with so that you don't leave that money on the table? Let's go check in with Hirsch and find out all this important information because your money's on the table. Hello, everyone. Today, I have got my special friend Hirsch here to talk about taxes and divorce because it's tax season and there's a lot of questions. So welcome, Hirsch. I'm so excited that you're here. I appreciate you having me on and definitely a timely topic. It's so needed. It is so needed. And, you know, when it there's so many different tax places that it can affect when you're going through a divorce, right? It's yes. not only the tax returns, which people are concerned about, but it's the repercussions of home things and child things and all kinds of stuff. So where should we start? Should we start with the marital home and think about what they should consider and know about? Yeah, the marital home is usually one of the two biggest assets that families have. So it's a great place to start. Uh, you know, when it comes to marital home, there, there are a lot of considerations as well, uh, even beyond the tax piece, quite honestly. And, you know, but what are some of the, the financial and the tax considerations? It starts with things as much as, is this a financial decision or is this an emotional decision? And I think people really do need to think through that. And, you know, if I can afford it, is it really still the best decision just because I can afford it? So that's even on a very high level of what people should be thinking about. What are the alternatives in housing? Sometimes it is more expensive. It might not be on the onset the best decision just because I can afford it, but sometimes when I start looking at options of how much is housing around us and now that interest rates are two and a half, three times what they were just two, two and a half years ago, sometimes the alternative housing becomes that much more expensive than it was. So maybe it is a better plan, but again, really understanding is it financial or not financial? And then another big consideration people need to think about, and it, it's funny, the timing, we're talking about taxes, this question, the timing, I literally was speaking to somebody this morning about this. How long are you going to stay in the house? Because how often have you heard, I know I've heard this often, well, I'm going to stay in two more years till my kids are out of high school because I don't want to move districts. It's a great district and I don't want to move. Well, you got to think about things like that as well, because on average, it's about 8% to sell a house, right? 6% commission, 2% other closing costs. 
So you know, I say, I'm going to keep the house for two more years. Am I going to buy my, my spouse out? And then I've got to, A, pay for all 8% in two years. Or if we sell it together, it's 4% each. We split those costs, right? Mm -hmm. The other thought around that one is if I sell it on my own, there is a capital gains exclusion. So the, the increase in value, putting it very, very uh, untechnically, the, 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 the gain that you would get. As a single person or a single owner, I would have 250000 as a uh, joint ownership, usually each one gets 250000 if they've been there two of the last four years, things like that. So another big consideration, because values have gone up quite significantly the last four or five years. When I, just to give you an example, it's about an $850,000 home that the lady this morning, we figured out it could be about a $65,000 difference to her if they sell it together versus selling it on her own only over an 18 to 20 month period because she wants to sell it not this summer but the following summer and so it's a it's a real hit if you're not thinking through things like that as well and then you know we covered a little bit of their special needs or reasons to stay in the home the school district ieps uh if your kids in college sometimes people are leaving the state especially if you live you know a lot of states you live in one you your kid goes to another state, if it's in-state tuition, things like that. And then a big question also is, how are you going to buy out the other spouse if you want to keep it? And you can get very creative on that, but are you using pre or post-tax dollars? Are you going to buy them out over time? There's a lot of options in how you can do that. So just in two minutes, whatever we took, a lot of things to consider as you can imagine. So. Holy moly. And I didn't even think about all these, these repercussions. So yeah. something that you said, which I wrote down a note for, is basically if you sell it together. So if you could get it into the divorce decree that you'll keep the house till the kids go to call it or leave the house and graduate or whatever your two-year thing is, and then we'll sell and then we'll split that up yes uh that's exactly what i actually recommended to this lady i mean it's 18 20 months similar situation uh but it you know when you're splitting your assets all of a sudden you really not and let's say you're deciding on 50 50 and you keep the home it's really not 50 50 if you're selling it in two years because two years from now you're going to incur all those costs that you would have split before and potentially incur uh capital gains that you may have been able to exclude had been doing it together so yeah that's that's a big one people are not thinking that through as clearly as they should be wow i didn't think of all of those details that is an amazing like revelation for me because i'm not a, i'm not a number girl so i don't really understand that part but i yeah. know that what you just said is what everyone needs to hear so thank you to go hey did you know you're going to spend six percent like that that number went oh of course they are but if you split it later it's it's a completely different game especially when you're talking a large purchase six percent million dollar house is a lot of money right and so um not that everyone has a million dollar house that's just my lucky number i wish for <laughs> so that's that's where we're going with that um because this is something i run through a lot with people somebody will say to me i have a million dollar house and i say to them how much are you going to keep 
And that's a big question because in my mind, it's a million dollars. But in reality, I let's say I owe $600,000 on a mortgage. It's really a $400,000 house to me when I'm getting divorced. And sometimes people are not always thinking it through to that degree also. It might be sold at a million dollars, but you're not going to keep a million dollars. And that's another differentiation that people need to keep in mind. Good point. <laughs> we often forget that there's a, there's a mortgage on that million. Yeah. Um, all right. Another factor that we have to think about in divorce with taxes is, is retirement accounts. I know a lot of people have made some really bad mistakes because of the fees and they just say, here, you keep that or I take that. Tell us all the, the bad things that can happen with that sort of splitting of retirement accounts. There are there are some bad things that can happen if you don't handle them correctly. And as you said, yeah, I think anyone who's been in the profession, who has been working through this, has seen them. And not all retirement accounts are equal. I'll start with this one. Everyone's heard of a Roth and a traditional IRA as an example. There are Roth and traditional 401ks as well, things like that. If you hold a Roth for there's certain requirements, but the basics are for five years and you know a couple other requirements, the Roth IRA could potentially be tax-free from day one when you distribute. A traditional, effectively, you are deferring all the growth, and usually for most people, the, the principle that they're putting in as well. So one is tax-free, one is not tax-free effectively. Very simplified. Uh, if I have a Roth and you have a traditional and they're both worth $100,000, we don't want to say, I'll keep mine, you keep yours, because one of them effectively is going to have taxes paid on, one's not going to have taxes paid on. So they're not equal in those ways. And we need to understand what are all of these things. I get marital balance sheets to review often that just says IRA X, IRA Y. And I've always got to clarify, are these Roth or traditional IRAs? So that, that's one piece when it comes to uh, thinking about retirement accounts. Uh, for what's called a qualified retirement plan, you do need something called a quadro. There are variations of it. For example, there's a DRO, just a domestic, uh, a qualified domestic, uh, I, I can't even think what it's called right now, but the, some of them are, are, depending on the state, there's a QUILDRO, which is for Illinois. Different states handle it in, in different ways, but the basic QUADRO idea is that you're going to retitle funds from one spouse to another. As many people know, the largest demographic of people getting divorced are 50 and over. And so often in, in families that are in the even 60s and 70s, which I've had, often there was kind of a stay-at-home parent often and one who worked. So sometimes a lot more of the retirement money is in one person's name. That doesn't mean that it's not a marital uh, asset, right? You've got to remember that. Mm -hmm. And so if you are going to split it, you need to know how are we going to, is it like a 401k or 403b or others that fall under this qualified plan that you need a quadro? Um, if it's an IRA, that's not a qualified plan. Most institutions will use your settlement agreement as an example, as the ability to move it without the taxes. Something just to think about there though, is call the institution beforehand. They may have internal paperwork. There's a lot of things that could be going on. Um, you know, another thing that, that you do need to keep in, in mind is very often divorces are expensive. 
people might run up the costs on a credit card. You don't want to carry a credit card at 25 to 30% on who knows, 50, 60, 70,000. So sometimes people are saying, well, maybe I should just take money out ahead um, you know, from a retirement plan in order to pay off those credit cards because ultimately it may be cheaper for them that way. Well, if you're going to do that, there are actually ways if you're under 59 and a half that you can avoid the 10% penalty. So that's another piece that you got to factor in if you're under 59 and a half. If you don't do it right, you will trigger taxes and you may trigger the 10% as well. And there are ways to avoid the 10% for sure if you want to take money, but there's ways to avoid all of it if you don't want any of their money up front and just transfer it from one spouse to the other. Wow. Oh my God. You said something and I wrote it down again. Yeah. Your hundred thousand and my hundred thousand are not the same. Explain to me the difference is 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 these fees, is what you're saying. If I if we just say you keep yours, I'll keep mine. Right. Are we you know what what well, would let's you say, let's uh, I think the easiest way to, to describe this is let's say we both about to retire next week. But we have to split, we're getting divorced today, we're gonna to split the, the assets today, and then we're gonna start drawing right after that on our pension plans, our retirement plans, whatever they are, our IRAs. So if you have a Roth IRA at $100,000, and I have a, a traditional IRA at $100,000, and we said, Tracy, you keep your 100,000 of your Roth, I'll keep my 100,000, and next week I'll draw a 1,000, you'll draw a 1,000, because we're gonna start needing that money, okay. My traditional IRA is taxable, at least the growth for sure, depending, but usually the whole thing is taxable. So whatever my tax bracket is, I'm gonna start drawing. Let's, you know, let's not talk about the 10% penalty. Let's say we're in retirement. So my traditional IRA is a taxable event every time I draw out of it. From a Roth perspective, the Roth IRA, you will probably not need to pay taxes, especially if you've held it for five years. So I might pay with state and, and local and everything else. I might pay, let's say 30% on my IRA and you may pay zero taxes on your IRA. Mm -hmm. So clearly they're not equal in that respect. I effectively get to keep 70,000 of it. You get to keep 100,000 of it. So when there are things like that, that I see, I am recommending I would get 50,000 from your Roth, you would get 50,000 from my traditional. Wow, so you'd be splitting the risk. Correct, and the taxes would be split. Now there's one other factor that you just, and this is with all your assets. You just gotta know, is it marital or not marital? And very often there are IRAs as an example, or you've been working for a company and then you get married. Well, a portion of it is going to be marital and a portion of it is not going to be marital. Mm -hmm. And that can be more confusing as well. And yeah. that's something you do need to understand. And I think personally, I have a professional walk you through it because you could lose a lot of money or leave a lot of money on the table that way. Yeah, I can imagine. I've had a lot of clients where they got married, they had X much in the account and then it grew over the next 30 years. and. Right. You know, they're just claiming and, and tell me if I'm wrong. Let's just pretend that hypothetically there was a hundred thousand in there before they got married and now it's worth a million. 
is there there is there are they leaving something behind if they're just going that hundred thousand is mine because that was pre um or is there a risk that they're giving away too much or something it is because this is and there's a lot of times i'll probably say this it's important to know your state laws because some states will say the growth of that hundred thousand is also non-marital and other states will say no the growth is marital because it happened during the marriage so even that you've got to go to the state level and understand the state's determination on that and that, that's a great question by the way because i have had people say oh i read online and i'm like yes but you don't live in that state it's different <laughs> you know so it, it, it's very very important in that respect to know your state laws absolutely here's another hypothetical before we go on to our next topic because it sort of bounces off it and maybe it yeah. hits our next topic but a lot of people have pensions and those also get divvied up and split. What are the risks involved? Yeah. The same thing as, as the- So those are all very similar, almost always need a quadro. Those companies usually will have, and 401ks, you know, all those often have their own as well. Pensions almost always have their own paperwork that you need to fill out because there are often options that come with it. Is, is the account split in two? etc right so that's number one the other piece though and this plays in again that's actually a perfect example let's say uh i've been working at a company now for 30 years and only 20 of them were uh while we were married so you can see 10 years was prior to the marriage 20 was during the marriage again how would you value that there are different ways that you do uh, one of the easiest ways I do it, uh, it's called a Hunt's formula, where I would effectively look at it, run uh, like almost like a proration of it, and then say, well, this is this, you know, this is marital, this is non-marital. Uh, but yeah, pensions play in, non-contributory non pensions play in in a very similar way in that respect. Wow, so many questions. All right, here's another one that I don't even see on our list, but... As we know, there's a lot of stay-at-home moms who have not necessarily worked through their, their life as a married person, and then they're getting a divorce. And I have this in my book, but a lot of people don't realize the social security benefits that after 10 yes. years, you are entitled to half of their social if it's more than yours. So if you haven't worked, you don't have high social. And the best part is that they don't actually lose it there. You're not taking it from them. It's almost like a bonus, right? Yes, correct. So if you get, if you get divorced, you've been married 10 plus years, then you have an option. You can look at what your social security benefit would be. And then you can say, well, what is half of my spouse's social security and take the larger of the two. So you have that ability. I, I always refer and tell people call social security and have them run that they are the source of all the numbers. So I would get the numbers directly from them as to what you personally would be eligible for. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some uh, difficulties with just leaving it at that simplicity, uh, as simplistic as that. There are factors that you need to think about sometimes people will work for a government agency and then, you know, after what used to be, let's say 20 years, get a full retirement package and then go into the corporate world. Well, now they've built up a social security through the corporate world. 
they may offset each other. So this is a big piece of why you really need to go to Social Security and have the, the exact numbers given to you because of that. You are just the brain of money. And I'm so happy because I am the opposite of brain of money. Um, so I always here for questions if you have any, you know that. I do. I know that. Um, all right. So if we're splitting non-retirement accounts, accounts, are we talking about what we just talked about, which is sort of the pensions or is there something? Some that things play in. The non-marital versus marital is a, is a very important one in that one. Um, you know, did you have, I don't know, a, a savings bond that was given to you for, you know, bar mitzvah confirmation, something, and now you've had it for 25 years that's going to be a non-marital asset, right? So you do need to keep that in mind uh, when it comes to that. And I, I will tell you this, it's, you know, a lot of people come into the divorce saying, oh, it's going to be 50-50, it shouldn't be difficult. And I'll say to them, are you going to live on the left side or the right side of the house, right? I mean, because <laughs> if somebody's keeping the house, mm. obviously they need to understand that it's not going to be this account 50-50, this account 50-50, et cetera. So that's one thing. Another one is what kind of a state are you living in? Is it a community property state or is it a equitable distribution state? Because by definition, equitable distribution, and I'm not an attorney, but I mean, I'm talking it from the finance side, 50-50 may not be an equitable distribution. What happens again, you and I are married and you have a $10 million trust waiting for you mm -hmm. and I have nothing. It may not be equitable to split everything we've, uh, you know, got 50-50 from that perspective because you've got $10 million waiting on the side for you, you know. Um, another one is, we've spoken a little bit about this, but are you receiving pre or post-tax money is another one. Um, you know, if you're buying the house or, you know, one of the parties is buying the other party out, are you using pre or post-tax or what dollars are you using is another piece. Uh, when it comes to investment accounts, this is something that also can be a difficult one. Uh, maybe some of the stocks have been held forever and they've got a very low, what's called a cost basis or cost. You know, the gain on that is going to be taxable. So maybe you need to look at that a little bit to make sure it's being distributed somewhat evenly. And then there's a lot of pieces that people don't even realize have tax impacts. I had I had a client that I worked with and uh, the husband, now he was in his 70s, she was in her 60s. He'd been putting in a cash value uh, life insurance policy for about 45 years or something. I don't remember exactly how long. He had over $200,000 in cash value. He said, I'll just, you know, I'll just give you all the money. I'll close out the policy. I said, I need to look at that policy first. And the statements, if he had done that, he would have triggered income of about 70 something thousand. So my question is, are you willing to pay the taxes on that 70,000 and give her the money? Right. All of the money, right? Because that's effectively what's going to happen or you're just going to be in court six months later. Wow. And then from a personal perspective, if you are negotiating, sometimes you do want to think about, is it a depreciating or, or appreciating asset? Generally, a residence is going to appreciate, but, you know, if there's a fun sports car on the side, that's going to depreciate more than likely. 
So what are you splitting and what are you getting? You know, just all of these are small considerations as you go through, but ultimately add up to big consideration overall. So huge considerations. Yeah. Uh, and the, the 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 intricacy of money is obviously based on what people have, where they have it, how much they have, how much they don't have, what's in their name, all kinds of different things. Um but one of the things that people come to me and just be like, okay, is it better to file my taxes together? We're going through a divorce. I don't know. So what does the filing status have? Okay. What, what's the yeah. best advice here? That is, a, that's a, a, such a pertinent topic because people, I don't want to say they get it wrong, but they don't get it optimally right, if that makes sense. Um, so better. a lot of people, uh, when you're going through a divorce, We've just finished December 31, that date, whatever you are, married or unmarried, is what determines, you know, your, your status, so to speak. Now, people who are in the middle of the process have two options right now. They're not divorced, that's at the end of the year, but they generally have two main options. You can do married filing joint, we combine everything and we now pay our taxes based on what's owed, or married filing separate. Um, you take your piece, I take my piece, we're going to file separately. The problem there with married filing separate, by the way, is, and people don't always realize this, there can be deductions and credits that you lose. For example, if you do married filing separate, you cannot take the dependent care credit. That can be quite significant for some people. And so you really do need to understand your situation from that perspective. Usually married filing joint is better than married filing separate. Now, I'm going to throw a little wrench into the simplicity of two choices and add a third. If you've been living separately for the last six months of the year mm -hmm. and you meet the other head of household criteria, you may be able to file head of household. And this is also actually a conversation I had within the last 24 hours with a client. And I said, you're probably better off filing both of you head of household, one takes two kids, one takes one kid, because they don't itemize. The standard deduction is significantly more for two head of households than one mar married filing joint, to the tune of about 14,000 higher. What that really means is if you do married filing uh, joint or you do head of household, if they both do head of household, there's 14,000 of income or I should say extra income that's deducted off their tax liability. In their tax bracket at 24%, we are talking over $3,000 difference just on that one item. It also happens he stays in the same marginal tax rate, her tax rate drops because she's earning significantly less. And so the overall picture, when I ran the numbers, their overall picture is about 4,200 in their favor doing head of household. Does it make sense? Wow. So, I hope that question about head of household. Yeah. Um, because you people... never really know, by the way, you never really know till you run the numbers. That's like, you, you may have to pay somebody to run the, so to speak, three tax returns instead of one. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's something that you need to think about. Um, you know, there are times where you want to remove yourself. I do not want to be tethered. Whatever the reason is, I can't stand, I can't work with this person, I don't trust them, uh, whatever it is. There's a million reasons that you could say, I just do not want to. It may cost you sometimes a little bit more. 
Um, but that is a decision people come to me with and say, I do not want to, you know. Um, so that is something that you 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 can take into mind. It's not uh, we married, we have to. Um, so just something else to think about as well. And then one last thing, sometimes we, and this happens a lot, by the way, in the high conflict divorces. I don't want to say a lot, but more than the ones that are not high conflict. I think my child, my spouse has been cheating on the taxes. What do I do? Right? Mm -hmm. So there is something, I'm just throwing this out for people to remember more than anything. They can call me if it happens, but there's something called an innocent spouse defense. And what that is, is the government says, well, you trust your spouse, right? Who wouldn't get married and trust their spouse? And you're effectively testifying that I trusted my spouse. This is on them if there is something wrong with the taxes. And I want you to consider that and not hold me liable. If you get audited, you have two years to actually kind of invoke that defense and file the innocent spouse forms. Ooh, that's good to know. I didn't know about the two years part, but that's yeah. really beneficial for people who are, you know, again, I only work in high conflict divorces, so they're always hiding, stealing, lying, cheating with all the money, right? And so there's a lot that goes on. They, so they that's why have... I threw that out because I know that your audience is, is very high. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, by the way, I, I've had to file them for people, and, and that's the reason. They say, I'm sure he's cheating on his taxes. He's passing all our personal expenses through the business to lower the business. Or, you know, uh, he doesn't claim all the income that he receives because he has a lot of cash that comes through the business. Whatever it might be that you think is like that, just keep it in mind and we can work on that and, and help you. I like what you said about the head of household and splitting the kids so that they both get it. Because yeah. a lot of times with divorcing a narcissist, they are on this mission to, um, you know, claim the kid and be head of household forever, even after, you know, because they're paying child support, maybe they always want to cling on to that benefit of head of household. Is there a benefit to giving them that? I mean, what's what's the advantage of allowing your spouse to call claim claim head of household forever? I, that I tell people to use that as a negotiating point to get something else. And in those instances, usually it's with the spouse that you're giving the extra uh, credit, so to speak, to the lowering their tax liability. Mm -hmm. Really, they're usually the ones earning significantly more money, mm -hmm. you know. And so I always say, look, they're going to get a much bigger bang for their buck if they file head of household. But it's an opportunity for you to say, I'm saving you a whole bunch of money. I want something in return. Whatever that, that is, it can be extra retirement money. It can be all the furniture in the house. You got to go buy whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But this, to remember, if you do give it up, it's not a one-time benefit. It's that every time he or she files their tax returns every year that they get that benefit. So it might just seem like three or four thousand, but if you have a kid for the next fifteen years and they get fifty, uh, you know, three thousand dollar benefit, it's now a forty-five thousand dollar benefit. So think about it from that perspective as well. That is the most brilliant thing for people to think about. Oh dear God, because you just think, oh, it's just three thousand. Sure, you can have it, right. but you're not using it as the bargaining chip, which you just explained. Which every one of my clients will further be making sure that <laughs> no, don't give it away, sell it away, barter it, and make it part of the deal versus a, a give back. Um, 
for so many of the things that they do. Are there any other? I just want to point out, I think this is where it becomes really, really important to work with someone like yourself or someone like myself who understands the process and can think about it objectively while you in the process going through the divorce, you and I have both been through a divorce, you're not thinking at your best. And sometimes you need somebody to point out something simple like that. Don't just give it away. What do you mean? Well, that's a $3,000 benefit. Or in our case that we just discussed, that's a $45,000 benefit. $45,000 benefit entitles you to a $30,000 ask. I don't know, you know, I'm making up exactly <laughs> what that threshold is, but it's a way that you can actually get a little bit more for your, your yourself in that respect. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. I love that you extended it out because so many don't go that far. They just think right. immediate, okay, and the, I'll be the head of household next year because he won't be here, she won't be here, but that's not true. If you've given it right. away, you're giving the kids away for them to write off. Yeah. And I, I just want to throw out one other thing. If you are, especially if you're the person got to pay, very often what happens in the settlement agreement, it says... If one spouse cannot benefit from the child tax credit or something to that effect, mm -hmm. then they are not allowed to take the child. They got to give the child over to the other parent. What people are always missing in that is that makes you go from head of household to single in your filing status. Head of household has much more favorable rates than single. And so, yes, you don't get the credit maybe, but you may get a significant credit because of the change in filing status or not changing your filing status. Mm -hmm. That's a very big thing for people to remember. There's about a six and a half, seven thousand dollar difference just in the standard deduction between head of household and single, plus more favorable tax rates. So it really can translate, even if you don't get the credit, so always be careful. I always tell my clients before you sign, let me read through what you what you're agreeing to and make sure that you're getting every dime that I can think of when it comes to, uh, you know, being uh, what you're agreeing to in that settlement statement or mm -hmm. settlement agreement, because there's things like that, that attorneys are not tax people and they do a fantastic job on the legal side, but they don't always know these kind of nuances in the taxes and, and and the rest of the finance sometimes. And so that's why I do think it's really important to have somebody review it who understands it to that depth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just listening to your expertise, I'm going to have everyone hire you because my God, <laughs> I, they need you. I, I would be okay with that, to be honest. I will be honest. <laughs> Send them over. Um, so are there anything that we missed or like maybe a biggest mistake that you see people make in the tax arena? Um, when going through a divorce? Is there? I, I think, well, I, I think uh, one of the big things is you really do need to plan as you go through your divorce. Someone like yourself who helps them envision what life looks like and get through the stress and really help them through that process in so many different ways is crucial because it's going to be much less stressful. It could be way cheaper because they're not racking up all the fees trying to figure it out with somebody who's at five or $600 an hour, you know, but on the finance side, you know, understand what are your priorities and your values, build a budget. I do them a little bit differently. I call it a divorce budget. What are your essential spend? What is your non-essential? So now we have 
What do I want in my life from your values and priorities? What's my starting point, my fully loaded life with all the essential, all the non-essential? I have a threshold I can't go below because I know what my, my essential spend is. Now I've got the framework anyway of building a financial plan. You know, um, but some of the, the uh, I think some of the mistakes, and this is financial and non-financial, is you really do need to understand your rights and responsibilities. You really need to, again, go into what are my values and priorities and in a, a, a clear manner, be able to convey that to your attorney. It's a very, very important piece when it comes to that. Uh, that's your biggest advocate usually in the process because they're the ones on the front line, so to speak, having that negotiation, talking to the other you know, opposing counsel. So I think all of these pieces are very, very important. You can't wing a divorce, uh, <laughs> not in the emotional state that you are. There's a fog of emotion that you're in. Uh, and so having your priorities, having a, a focus and having some goals like that are going to help you tremendously. Brilliant. That's all I can say, my friend. You're brilliant. <laughs> so let's tell people where they can find you, because I think you can help people in every state. Is that correct? I can. I can. Both my CPA and my CDFA certified divorce financial analyst certification are national. Uh, they are not state specific like specific like a, an attorney is. Uh, so yes, I've actually worked with people in over 20 states at this point. So yes. Um, to get in touch with me, you can email me directly. Hirsch, H-I-R-S-C-H, at lifecycle.financial. That's the name of the company. So it might be easy if you want to just go to my website. You can reach me through that, lifecycle.financial. Again, once more, lifecycle.financial. And we'll put it in the notes below for those people who Fantastic. are grabbing their pen. I wasn't ready for a pen. So we'll, we'll put it out there so that everyone can reach you because these are decisions that are going to impact their life. And they're not little mistakes. They're quite high, $16,000, $20,000, $100,000 mistakes that you just think, oh, we'll split that hundred. You take yours, I'll take mine. And you're losing right there, right? And so it is, it is essential for people to know all these little tiny intricacies and making sure that they don't make big, giant, costly mistakes. I agree. I think that's 100% accurate. Yeah. Well, thank you, my friend. It has been an amazing interview and I can't wait for the world to hear this because there's so much they need to know. So thank you. It's always a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on again. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys found that helpful. Hirsch is, as I said, he's a brilliant friend and he is always helpful to teach us all this information. So please follow the information down below and, and do a consultant with him and find out how he can help you make better decisions. It's so unusual that someone can talk to you no matter where you live and give you this kind of tax information because a lot of accountants and bookkeepers are really state specific. So if you just need someone that really gets it, reach out to Hirsch and find out how he can save you a lot of money because you do not want to leave a lot of money foolishly 
on the divorce table. And those tips that he gave us today are going to be part of my portfolio forever so that everyone knows these are mistakes we don't want to do. So I hope you found this helpful. If you haven't subscribed to my channel, please do. Tracy Malone, I am here at NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. If you are looking for someone to guide you, coach you, help you through your divorce, I am the author of Divorcing Your Narcissist. You can't make this shit up. So I will see you guys soon. And thanks for coming.